was uh, reviewing my um, notes here for this talk this morning. I saw it's um, it's more of a these are notes towards a, what might become a talk someday. So I should be patient with um, with the continuity here and how it uh, unfolds. Um, yeah, I know it's uh, it's a big topic. You talk about four gospels and. Uh, there, uh, as you see in, in the handout, the uh, how they open. Uh, speaking of quoting people, I'll start right away by uh, referring to um, you've, I'm sure you've heard of him, um, the late uh, uh, controversial at times for sure, the late um, U.S. Supreme Court Justice. I'm told his name is pronounced Anthony Scalia, Scalia uh, learned uh, uh, justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. He told. I saw him interviewed once, and he told a story to highlight his... Uh, he had a great sense of humor. He was very uh, lively, loving life kind of fellow. You could tell by his whole uh, demeanor. He told a story uh, to his interview, the man interviewing him, to highlight his approach to reading, to interpreting, of course, the Constitution of the United States, the job of a high-ranking uh, jurist. So the story, as he told it, teachers at the uh, Supreme Court building in Washington uh, would often stand in front of a displayed copy of the U.S. Constitution, and the uh, teacher would, uh, 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 standing in front of their young charges, uh, would assert to their, to them, these students, that um, this is a document. This is the document that governs our country. And they would proudly say, it's a good thing to say, uh, it, it is, they would, teacher would say to the young students, it is a living document. A living document uh, uh, governs our, our, our nation. A, ni- a nice thing to say, one might think. But again, Mr. Scalia, a distinguished scholar of things legal, of course, said to his interviewer that I was always tempted, he said, to, uh, of course, he would never do this being a gentleman, but he was tempted to yell out over the heads of the students at the teacher, no, 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 sorry. It is not a living document. It is really quite dead. <laughs> it is a dead document, and it should be read as such. Dead, not living. He thought that was an error to think of it as a living document. In very general terms, and I think uh, I think I get his point, he believed that Another branch of government produced, as they should, living documents. Uh, Legislation, that's very much a kind of living document dealing with right now issues needing to be addressed. Those were the living documents in the system. His was dead. Uh, Interesting stuff. I don't know if it has anything to say about how we might approach the Bible. Um... A dead document, of course, that is, of course, a metaphor, isn't it? Uh, it dead means, I take it, it means stable. It means a fixed point for making decisions about important matters. Um, are current solutions to current problems consistent with our founding values? It's the way a, a Supreme Court uh, deals with things. Progress, on this view is only possible if measured by something which stands still. That's uh, the underlying foundation thought, I take it. Living documents, again, judged by a dead document. 
the word of God is living, active, sharp. It discerns, says the letter to the Hebrews. But it is also, we're told in Holy Writ, it is reliable. Properly understood, it is unchanging. No, the word of our God shall stand forever, says Isaiah. So it might be easy, too easy maybe, just to say that this issue as addressed in that kind of context, the Constitution, how it's interpreted, is just too easily addressed this way. The Bible is received by the church as reliable, as stable, and at the same time as very living, as both. So no problem here. We don't have much of a problem there. I would think that that's true enough. So we have not progressed very far at all, alas, in this introduction so far. So there you go. That's the way it is with introductions. They sort of weed out the people who are interested. (laughs) (laughs) And yet there is a something to ponder here, I'm sure. Reading, we will agree as Christians, reading is a profound thing in our faith. Um, Not to be merely dramatic, but to be casual about reading is dangerous. Or it has very undesirable outcomes. Great church councils have been about, very broadly speaking, how to read. How will we read what's been given to us? How will we say what we've been reading? 1 John, John's first epistle, I would think is a witness to these things, the importance of reading. I've never really seen this before, so I thought about this topic, and then of late I've been reading John's epistles. John likes to say things like, you remember this, it seems obvious, but it it caught my attention for the first time. He (laughs) says, do you remember John's epistles? I have written these things, as if the readers and the hearers of that document didn't know that. They know that, but he's, he wants to emphasize that. I have written these things, and then that your joy may be complete. Or he says again in the same epistle, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. I have written these things. It is written, says Jesus, to the tempter uh, when he's tempted in the wilderness. If written then, of course, it is to be read. Is it going too far? At least, maybe not. We receive that we have in our presence in in the church divine writing, so it must involve the attempt at, what, divine reading? If we've got a divine document written, we need to approach at least a divine reading. Reading must be, of course, discerning. It is a a work of comparing, of weighing. Reading inevitably involves interpreting. What is enduring here as I read something? But what is truth for just now, but waiting for more meaning? Constitutions are read to bring about more of their meaning for now in a a nation's life uh, together. A big question then is simply this, I think. Is reading as understood as discerning, as comparing, as weighing, as interpreting, is this task for the church, is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? Uh, Is the task set to us to interpret 
do we see that as good or bad? Would it be better if we didn't have to interpret, if the meaning was just right there on its surface, obvious? To echo the title of a book by James Smith, the fellow who we studied, who's one of his books we looked at here, he's a great um, professional philosopher, James Smith. He's got a first-rate mind. He asked this question in one of his books, is interpreting a result of the fall? Uh, the traditions fall, obviously, Genesis. Or, he asks... Is interpretation, in fact, nothing less than a good gift to us from our Creator? Is tradition a, a problem or is it a, a, a good thing to be received with joy? The task of interpreting. Mr. Smith asks, I think that's a good question to ask. Bad is it good or is it both? One answer, jumping right into where we're going with today's talk, obviously, it is a good thing, I will argue, because heaven has given us four Gospels, which is a bit uh, bit vague. Um, and maybe it should be said something like this to bring out what I think is a good question to ponder here. And I'll use... Without apology, our traditional Christian discourse, our community's way of speaking, seems to me that the Holy Spirit has instructed the church something like this. Um, if we remember, and certainly the church wants to, if we remember the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the Spirit has said to us, you are to remember it as one story, but told in four ways. Which always surprises me a bit. I don't know if it surprises you. Or this life is told in four ways and it will remain, of course, one story. Um, this is a bit odd, it seems to me. Stable, reliable, and inviting, as told in four ways, inviting discernment. It's an invitation, it seems to me, to interpretation. So it's as if the Spirit answers Mr. Smith's question will say, no, uh, the task of interpretation is a gift I'm giving you. I want you to struggle and interpret the Scriptures. I will not give you their meaning too easily. I think that's part of why we have four Gospels. This would seem to be nothing less than a guarantor, a guarantee of interpretation for sure. Interpretation is a, a form of reading, surely. And it's meant to be, I take it, careful, slow, measured, watchful reading. It will not um, yield up its meaning to easy, sloppy reading. It discounts, in fact, hurry, easy conclusions. If we're anxious to get to a uh, conclusion, uh, the scriptures won't cooperate with us very easily. Interpretation may challenge, of course. Luther, we're going to hear about Luther this year a lot. Sheila's going to tell us lots about Luther down the road. Luther regarded, re regarded reading scripture as a form of prayer. You read and pray at the same time. You struggle with the text. You you fight it as it fights with you. Reading as a form of prayer. In principle, we want to say, though I'm sure, it does not decline conviction. No, it's not an ever never-ending game of let's interpret some more. But it makes conviction weighty, uh, responsible, and mature. One would hope. So today, 
uh, just a taste, a very small spoonful, if you will, of looking, in, in the light of these kinds of questions, of looking at four Gospels, uh, just at first glance, about the one Son of Man. A fourfold look at the one unchanging Lord. Again, an affirmation of interpretation which uh, we'll have a look at a couple of examples of it, how it might unfold for the church, an affirmation of interpretation as nothing less than blessing. Uh, the best way to begin interpretation, Martin Luther would certainly uh, affirm this, I'm sure, is to begin with uh, prayer. So before we have a, a go at this topic, let's say a word of prayer. Lord, we um, have your word in front of us, which we always do. We ask you to teach us how to read, how to ponder in a way which pleases you, so that the richness and fullness of what you have given us, um, we may benefit thereby to your glory and to our great, great benefit indeed. Amen. Amen. Openings. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the openings of the Gospels, at least as part of this talk, and then move on to other things in the Gospels. Just generally, I, I love this kind of thing. Uh, for, if you don't find this exciting, just uh, just sip coffee now and close the mind down if you haven't already. <laughs> openings, I've always found openings are memorable. I don't know if you find them so... Uh, they invoke openings um, in, in significant literature, something loved, perhaps. Uh, they become the opening to works of art written, are, can become iconic in our lives, very powerful. Whole traditions may be present in just the way a text uh, announces itself, um, uh, how it should be read. Or he, here's this text, remember it perhaps this way. Uh, um, here's a few examples of my favorite I'm sure you would maybe in the discussion time uh, we can talk about this as a member we're going to read how the gospels open with four uh, uh, startling openings it seems to me but from literature more generally yeah it is a truth universally acknowledged as a great opening it is a truth universally acknowledged who can forget that uh, Jane Austen, of course, uh, she also tells us right off the bat, lived before postmodern uh, thought. Universal truths, universally acknowledged, are not popular these days. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. There you go. Great, great storytellers invoke the way they start something. Uh, they create a feeling, don't they? Not the first words by any means, but I never forget uh, Tolkien's tone. If you love the Lord of the Rings, I'm one of the lovers of that text. Um, you remember how Tolkien, early on in his introduction, he says something like, you can see that little gnomish man telling a story this way. This is a book, he says, you know, largely about hobbits. Let me tell you a few things about hobbits. Mm, yeah, that's, take that kind of, literary art for granted that's perfect it seems to me the way he does that um, that says as I hear it well let's have some fun but then just maybe something a lot more than fun because he's almost hinting that I know something about hobbits let me tell you about them but we know there aren't hobbits Mr. Tolkien ah, let me tell you about them anyway 
uh, I, I think we can learn from that. I take it some of our Lord's parables start with that tone. You know, you remember that woman who had married a guy who had six more brothers and she ran through the whole family. <laughs> you know, some of our Lord has that sort of a tone of, oh, how ridiculous this is. But something serious is about to be told to you about, the, about that story. You know, there you go. One more, just speaking of one more, I can't resist it because I think it's one of my favorite. If I had to, if I'm in the desert, if someone put a gun in my head, what's your favorite opening in literature? I'd say, oh, it's this one. And we all know it, we all know it uh, of man's first disobedience uh, opens one of the great works of uh, of our civilization of English literature of man's first disobedience. I wonder how long Milton lingered over just that. I, I don't know if anybody could possibly answer that of man's first disobedience. Maybe Milton just came with that easily. I mean, probably did of man's first disobedience. Uh, the S sound. Do you hear that? Of man's, of man's first disobedience. The S sound, speaking of uh, someone else's in the text. There, the snake sound of man's first disobedience. The snake is unnamed, but he's present in the first four words. Milton puts him there, just beneath the surface. He's waiting to appear. A man's first disobedience, much present, but not on its surface. Does scripture have that quality? Might all of each of the four Gospels be present in its opening? You know, all present. At least could it all be present when you're doing a second reading. Reading, we think about reading. Reading is sometimes a first reading is one experience. A second reading is quite another experience. And a third and a fourth and a fifth. And some people in the life of the church have memorized the Gospels. not amazing? How many readings do they do? They read it in their sleep, presumably. All of the Gospels... Does the Creator work this way in in speaking to us? Uh, might all of an oak tree be present in an acorn? It's the way our Creator does it sometimes. Just a little acorn. Boy, you wouldn't believe what's in that acorn. So we might begin just by looking. And you've got what we're going to look at in front of you. And uh, uh, we're all so familiar with this, these words that uh, that's a problem, I think, I take it. It's not a new idea that what you're super familiar with, uh, you become unfamiliar with it because you're so familiar with it. So we'll just, just look. I won't apologize. We'll just look. I don't know if you've ever done this in a Bible study. I don't remember ever in a formal Bible study that I was in, we ever did this. <clears throat> So I've done this really for the first time in this. Uh, the first one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's Matthew, of course. The book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mm. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. If you've got a study Bible, you always know they always tell you some manuscripts say Son of God, some don't. We'll go with the manuscripts that say that, Son of God. It's consistent, obviously, with the rest of what Mark says. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begins Mark. Inasmuch, it's all one word there, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, and that goes on of the things accomplished amongst us. Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. And then the best known opening in, uh, some people say, in all of literature. One of the most quoted set of words ever. People who don't even know they're quoting John know these words, don't they? In the beginning was the word. Uh, John's famous opening. No, there's a really well-known opening. In the beginning was the word. Four openings. Have you ever done this in a Bible study? I haven't again, but I've done it now because I'm going to read it to you. I have tried to read those together. An initial summary might go something like this. In a Bible study, you might someday get bored with what you're doing in your Bible study. Do this little project. Put these in front of everybody. Come, come back next week and give us a summary. I would do a summary something like this, and it's open to, of course, the challenge. And in, in discussion time, we will. I don't see a clock over there. Uh, something like this. Uh, the expected one, like Israel, God's son... This one who commands attention and the one through whom all things were made of this presence in the world, we write. We, of course, is a fiction, you want to say right away, because no one said what I just said, not, not, in, not in the canon. We is, the, we is the we of interpretation, of course. We, the church, read these four gospels and then we think about them. They're like a stereo going around in our mind, demanding interpretation, demanding summary at times. Or even more succinct, you might go something like this, expected son of God, a commanding presence, the ordering, originating power before all things of this one we write. Expected. Expected the book of the genealogy. He's a part of an ongoing story. He's the son of God. Israel was called the son of God in Israel's story. So now the son of God appears. I've gone with inasmuch as many have undertaken. Lots of people were writing about Jesus. He's commanding attention now amongst us. Commanding attention. A lot of folks want to write about him. And he's nothing less than, again, the ordering, originating power of all things. Of this one we write. I want to interpret that this way. I've said this before in this place, I'm sure, but I, I've really been helped and with this, these simple thoughts. Forgive me for being so simple, but I need simple things. The Gospels present us, again, this simple idea I first heard from the uh, New Testament scholar uh, Richard Bauckham, a New Testament scholar at, uh, used to be at St. Andrews. The Gospels present us with what he calls a novum. A Latin word, N-O-V-U-M, a novum, a nice Latin word. This I find very clarifying. It's so simple, but I find it clarifying. They present us with, again, a novum. That is to say, the Gospels are not an argument about anything. They are, rather, the Gospels, a witness. 
The Gospels are not an argument for Jesus. They're a witness to Jesus. Maybe we could call them a witness argument. For some, this uh, doesn't mean so what? Uh, this presence, Jesus, by calling him a novum, you see, it highlights something. This presence will define itself. That's what a novum does. Here is a completely unique new thing. We have no categories in which to define an absolutely new, unique thing. A novum defines itself. All that the gospel writers do, in a, in a sense, is to point, like John the Baptist. This, to quote one John again, this we have seen and heard. This. This we have seen and heard. Not an argument to prove something, but a witness. This we have seen and heard. And when all once this is fully embraced, this simple idea, for some, I'm one of them, this will work towards, it has in some cases saved people's faith, at least apparently, uh, because it gets rid of great confusion and anguish. It makes it just disappear. You see, we may critically embrace all of that wondrous world out there, uh, that strange world of what is called historical critical scholarship, and yet at the same time receive the Bible as a divine gift. It happened in real history, the New Testament is saying, and it says, this we have seen and heard. Whatever you make of it, this we have seen and heard. We didn't make this up. It's just there. We have no argument for it. We're just a witness to this event. This we have seen and heard. There it is. Both Testaments, the Gospels, the Old Testament may be received as divine gift and yet be quite open to the wondrous world of historical critical scholarship and or the same thing the world of interpretation we don't have to play one off against the other we can with a clear intellectual conscience receive them as divine gift and allow the full bore of interpretation to be unleashed upon them they're not afraid of that because they're a witness to this magnificent novum this unique presence in the world. No contradiction here. The gift, again, invites, it invites a world of interpretive response. Interpretive response, that is to say, is inherent in this gift. Uh, or a dead historical past may be livingly present to us because of the nature of what that witness was. Um, there you go. The, the church pays attention, that is to say, to the Bible in many and various ways. Because heaven speaks in many and various ways. Even the witness to Jesus takes four forms. Again, this is an amazing fact, too little acknowledged in the life of faith. At least it, it was for me for the longest time. Um, just a little interlude for people um, who are interested in this kind of thing. Um, for the past 200 years, 
this simple fact has simply not been uh, acknowledged in the prevailing approach to gospel study. Um, I, I, I know them, a unique presence that is, is just has been seen as, oh, that's simply unmanageable. We can't deal with that. Uh, and so Jesus has been reduced, as you all know, those of you who pay attention to this kind of thing, to a product of sorts. Uh, he was maybe the product of church-synagogue hostility, which ignores why did the church arise. Um, he's a remembering of a rabbi through the lens of a Pauline mission to the Gentiles. Uh, the Gospels are forms of preaching. Some people have said, all fascinating and wondrous, but all ignoring the simple surface, obvious witness that this novum, this mystery, was seen and heard in the first century, and the Gospels are a witness to that novum. Uh, there it is. Jesus, a prophet. Jesus, a teacher of wisdom. Jesus, a proclaimer of a coming kingdom. All pretty interesting stuff. But, of course, the Gospels say a lot more than that. For sure. End of interlude, you know. Where A big question that you can pose, therefore, to the Gospels to make progress in understanding this task of interpretation that we believe or we're posing that the Spirit gave to the Church to indulge in or to, uh, to quest herself in understanding Jesus, we can ask a question like, were the Gospel writers themselves interpretive witnesses? Did they, when they said, this we have seen and heard, were they also interpreting what they saw and heard that it, did they frame their witness in a certain view of the world that's a question that is um, uh, often posed uh, with various uh, agendas probably at work but a question that should be pushed further than that question a man like Richard Hayes and I lean a lot on Richard Hayes this morning um for some biblical examples of biblical inter interpretation, Richard Hayes would push the question more and more, was Jesus of Nazareth an interpretive witness to himself? Was this novum teaching his disciples what to make of him? Was Jesus an interpretive witness to himself? I think that's... Um, the kind of question that if we really push it and stay with it will deepen our reading of Holy Scripture. Uh, let's, uh, let's see, a moment of high drama in the Gospels uh, goes like this. Does anyone have a Bible in front of them? I forgot to bring a Bible in with me. Does anyone have a Bible? I'm sorry. I should, I'm, oh, let me. How would ESV a Bible? You don't have a Bible. This is a, a little interlude for you. You know. I'm sorry. You you need a break from my voice. This won't come out. Can I bring this back to you? Uh, thank you. You need a break. Have some coffee, Mark. You know this story. It's, I think it's a good uh, a good example of uh, how this um, how how this kind of question might be answered with a text in front of us. 
Mark 11, you, those of you who are know scripture by, by number will know what I'm referring to here. Mark 11, uh, uh, 15 to 19. Let me read this for you. It's a, a well-known story. We all know it. And they came to Jerusalem, Mark says. Uh, again, 4, um, 11 at 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it, you have made it, a den of robbers. Well-known story. We all, we all know that very well. You have made it a den, a den of robbers. What does this kind of story mean in Mark's Gospel? You know, this story uh, is in, it shows up in all the Gospels. What does this mean? It's sometimes called, quite reasonably, you'll agree, a kind of street theater. Uh, this action, a kind of prophetic action in the temple. According to Mark, Jesus said what it means. Jesus interpreted his own action here, quite obviously. Is it not written, Jesus says, is it not written? How do you read here? He's asking his disciples. Is it not written? My house, we've just heard, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, he says further, you have made it a den of robbers. Again, noting the very obvious here. This is presented as Jesus interpreting Jesus. This is presented as Jesus telling us what this action in the temple means. It is presented as not Mark interpreting Jesus. This is presented as Jesus interpreting Jesus. How does the interpretation proceed? Let's try and be, I say this to myself, you guys already are, let's try and be good readers. How does our Lord's interpretation Proceeds Well, broadly speaking, to note the obvious again, it proceeds in two parts. My house, he says, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay? This is a direct citation of, I- of Isaiah chapter 56. The Lord is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. From a passage which speaks of Israel's God welcoming all nations into his temple presence. This is, in other word, a passage from Isaiah, which is about, in, in modern interpretive language, this is about an eschatologically restored Jerusalem, an eschatologically restored temple. I will gather others to them, that is, to Israel, besides those already gathered. So says Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 7 and 8. I will gather others to them, to my people, 
besides those already gathered. A temple area reserved for Gentiles must be set apart. It must be honored. It must not be used for temple money transactions. The Lord is apparently saying here. And then the Lord moves on. But you have made it, he says, a den of robbers. This again is a direct citation, this time from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah, in that chapter, Jeremiah had a habit of doing, as you know, delivering a scathing denunciation of the temple and speaking of its complete destruction which then happened in Jeremiah's time. And you know, he what Jeremiah saw coming happened. All this quite obvious. But it's very good just to slow right down as careful readers and just ponder what's going on here. The temple cleansing is here portrayed as meaning, apparently, that the time of Israel's fulfillment is coming to some sort of fulfillment. It is at hand. But this fulfillment may, or perhaps will involve, the temple's destruction. The time of the coming in of the Gentiles is approaching. Therefore, keep the temple area where they gather clean and ready for them. But also the destruction of the temple appears to be at hand. Wow. That is quite a lot. But it seems to be obviously there in Jesus' teaching here as he goes to Isaiah for what we would call a little phrase, a little fragment. Then he goes over to Jeremiah for a little fragment and he fuses them. There's... A demand for careful reading, surely. Again, that's a lot. A lot of implied meaning is invoked by two phrases. One from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. If you will, all of that meaning unnamed, but almost certainly present. Yeah. All of that meaning is there, apparently, but it's not on its surface. See how, apparently, Jesus of Nazareth taught, according to Mark? Just fragment, fragment, I fuse them. Got that? How is it with your reading? It is written. How did Jesus teach? Almost he taught that a way which demanded that you immerse yourself in these texts and know how to put the pattern together. Nothing obvious. This is amazing. How much meaning, how much interpreting challenge, how much challenging discernment a call for sits before us in Scripture. As some would have it, I totally agree with them much in every way. They just will not yield their meaning uh, easily. The New Testament, um, like Jesus, says Martin Luther, lies in the manger of the Old Testament. There's a Luther quote to remember. 
Like Jesus, the New Testament lies in the manger of the Old Testament. You will not understand Jesus unless you thoroughly immerse yourself in Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament. This novum is a fulfillment of a a given text. Jesus is... But these kind of texts seem to clearly indicate Jesus is Israel's God returning to his temple, returning to Jerusalem, returning to his people. Can you tell me the time? I have no idea. Quarter to two. Wow. Um, <clears throat> judges um, and learned lawyers um, argue about a great uh, argue about great texts, about great uh, const- about constitutions, and constitutions make great demands on what is called uh, reader competence. Um, what reading, what interpretation commends itself, even commands itself to a community of readers such as ourselves? You know? Let's talk to, about it's about reading. How, how concerned are we about being a competent community of readers and willing at times, in all humility, to challenge at times easily accepted readings that we've lived with for a long time the scriptures sometimes engaged in deeply would just not allow that old interpretation to stand um, Luke says uh, "Must I want time for interaction here I want, we want to race to a conclusion but Luke says that on a Sabbath the Lord healed a woman uh, long Luke 13 I won't read it long afflicted and you remember this story bent over with suffering she was in the synagogue uh, and uh, he our Lord healed her and famously an objection an objection to this healing was raised um, why this kind of healing work on a Sabbath the leader of the synagogue said uh, but Jesus said famously that Sabbath, slightly unfolding them, what Jesus says here, but it's clear that what he seems to be saying, that Sabbath is a remembrance of our liberation. What better thing to do on the Sabbath, therefore, than to set someone free? <clears throat> and when he said this, although a little, a little passing throwaway line makes perfect common sense. Uh, all those who opposed him, all those who opposed Jesus on this occasion, were put to shame. Yeah. It's a, a famous story, should be famous, lovely healing story. But does reader competence demand sooner or later that we get around to saying to ourselves, does Luke mean us to continue the story? as competent readers, perhaps like this. For you are God, says the prophet Isaiah. For you are God. And we did not know you, the God of Israel, the Savior. All those who oppose him shall be put to shame. 
Does Luke plant underneath the surface of his text for a competent, prayerful reader for the church of Jesus Christ? Is he saying, I'm telling you about Israel's God embodied amongst us. And he puts all those who oppose him to shame. Um, I'm convinced that Luke does mean that. Luke means us to see deeply here, beneath the surface, I'm telling you about God, is present here. We witness to him, this we have seen and heard. This is the God of Israel embodied in our presence. Yes, the Savior who bore the world's shame so that we may not be shamed. This God who shames his enemies actually will take the shame upon himself. The whole dynamic of who Jesus is and what he's come to do is set resonating in a competent reader's mind, a prayerful reader, as Luther would have it, in the text just beneath its surface. Um, in, um, in terms of the history of uh, the battles over who is Jesus in historical critical terms, you know, the old story has been Matthew, Mark, and Luke are ambiguous about who Jesus is, but it comes clean in John. That shows that John is late. John just says, oh, that's God in our midst. The word became flesh. On this reading, no, the synoptic gospels tell us that Jesus is God embodied amongst his people. The synoptics tell us that. There's nothing uniquely new about John. Jesus is God, Luke is telling us putting his enemies to shame. He doesn't hate his enemies. He's going to save them. But he puts them to shame when they're so wrong about what the, what, what the narrative of saving Israel of Egypt means. It means God's going to liberate people. You know, there it is. Uh, so my prayer today for us all, as we, we're headed towards 10 o'clock now, I don't have a... Thank you. How good, I want... I, I must stop when... I just want, uh, I hope that the Lord makes us uh, good readers. Uh, this has just been an exercise in reading scripture again. I hope it has been awfully simple for you, a learned bunch like you. And I couldn't hope, help but overhear uh, earlier, there were some, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't want to overstate it, but some uh, ironic remarks about Marilyn Robinson. I have a reputation as being a bit of an obsessive about Marilyn, which I am. She's coming to town, you know, next month, a couple of weeks. I love this. When she speaks about um, on reading scripture, uh, she says gracious things like this. By grace of my abiding ignorance, it is always new to me. I am never not instructed. A great, profound reader is Marilyn. What an... Uh, um, she, she commends the reformers, especially her chief intellectual hero in life, uh, John Calvin, for their, their lives of... Uh, what's the, What's the right word she uses? But their lives of intense, self-sacrificial reading. The uh, the reformers 
didn't know anything by rumor. They weren't content with that. They knew the fathers. They knew the medievals. They knew scripture. They kept going back to it. Now, there were, they always wanted to be, to hear it anew. So, um, I hope we've been instructed again. You always will be instructed, as Marilyn reminds us, by going back to this, these amazing texts and feeling how fragments on a surface, as profound as that is, will reward, art, that's the word, arduous reading. Arduous reading. Why does the Lord put them to shame? Because the prophet said when God is embodied, in, when the God of Israel comes to his people, he will put them to shame. So Luke is saying God embodied amongst this. I, I, I witness to this novum. So again, uh, may the Lord, uh, let me say this as a closing prayer before our conversation. May the Lord simply uh, make us good readers. It is written. Lord, make us good readers of what is written. Uh, Amen. Of course, some of you may have objections that this isn't, all that isn't on the surface. That it's, um, maybe there's some other, uh, Will, please. What do you do about um, uh, people who can't understand, don't have a subtlety of mind to understand all the analogies, but... I mean, I know you know that you're not left out of the equation, but what, what, what do you have to say about that? The people who, who won't see... Stupid people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're often asked to address Larry's exchange. Um, well, I think um, n- there isn't any... Um, the, church, uh, the church as a whole is called to be profound in its reading. But individual readers like me, I'm gonna. I, I I don't have to feel that this makes my ordinary everyday reading scripture in, inadequate or bad, or that it's a, it's a massive failure. The Lord is patient with me. He'll give me a surface and he'll bless me as I take in a surface. Would you think this is goodwill? But then he beckons the church on to more, more. Uh, I, I'm speaking more to you here, and. Uh, Otherwise, I think the church has become casual, especially about the Old Testament. Like Jesus fulfills it, we forget it. But Luther would say, no, he remains in the manger there. Hayes puts it, you will not understand the meaning of Jesus without the Old Testament. You will not understand the Old Testament without the witness to Jesus in the Gospels. They are they're interlinked. interlinked. I, I try to... Uh, I stayed away from fancy language because fancy language will sometimes, you know, talk about things like metalepsis, which I know over coffee, I often hear you people talking about (laughs) metalepsis, which is a a, a literary thing whereby citing a fragment beckons readers to become, to recover more of an original subtext seeking the full force of, of the intertextual links, which I know a lot of you do point out in, in coffee. I never understand what you're talking about, but I go slow there. But yeah, a fragment. What does the Lord do in that, in that, in that Mark thing? Are we really... I, I've really been convicted by Hayes 
Bill Reimer here has heard Richard Hayes in person. He's a great New Testament scholar, very, very, um, very learned man. He just says, look, 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 look at Mark. Jesus grabs a few words from Jeremiah, a few words from Isaiah, says, there, there, that's what I just did. Now, so it's not individual Bible facts. It's the pattern of Bible facts that the Lord commands us to see. So on the road to Emmaus, I like this point uh, some people have made. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus didn't say, oh, open your eyes, I'll show you my hands and my feet. He said, let's have a Bible study. And he opened to them the scriptures and all the things in the Psalter and the Pentateuch and the Prophets he said, you see the pattern? Got it? The pattern should tell you that the Messiah is going to be rejected by his people so that his people may be saved. God has a plan. You should see this. And that's the way the Lord unfolds his word. I mean, that must be an invitation if not a command to interpretation, that it's a gift. Interpretation's a gift, it's not a burden. Do you think in heaven we'll spend eternity interpreting God? I suspect, Mimi, we will. The infinite mystery will go from one degree of glory to another. I've interpreted them this much, and then there'll be more. And then there'll be an infinity, an eternity of more and more of the mystery of who God is revealed in Jesus. I think interpretation is our our gift forever in some sense. I, maybe that's just... Luther scholar over here, please. Sheila, that'd be you, Sheila. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. You're one of your uh, <laughs> many, one of your many interests. Not a theologian, right? Mm. No, I, it's really important what you said about interpretation, Harvey, and thank mm. you for that. And maybe someday you'll go further with it because this is dangerous mm. when we have words that we do not understand, or where we want to cite this little bit and run with it off into the whatever direction. Mm. Mm. Now. They had Jesus, the people that wrote the Gospels. We have the Holy Spirit. Mm. And the Holy Spirit's job is to instruct, correct, and witness to Christ. So interpretation without the Spirit is not going to take us in the right direction. Oh, sure. Thank you, Sheila. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, Susan, please. Just following on from that, and going back a little bit to what Will asked, uh, one of my one part of my job is to have a Bible study with international scholars. It's an ESL Bible study. These most of these people. Well, one woman asked me the other day, "What is Christianity?" Mm-hmm. That many of them are holding the Bible for the first time mm-hmm. ever in their hands. They didn't know what it was before they came to the study. Mm-hmm. And. But I can see exactly what Sheila says, the Holy Spirit working in people. Mm. As they read the scriptures, almost always the New Testament, the the life of Jesus. Mm. Uh, Last term, 
at the end of the term, having looked at incidents in Jesus' life, mm. we looked at the resurrection appearance of, mm. with Thomas. Mm. And uh, one of the men in the Bible study, his English name is Thomas. <laughs> and, you know, at the end, I said, so this is the conclusion they came to. What's your conclusion after mm. looking at Jesus? Mm. And, and some of them get it, and some of them don't. Um, mm. But obviously they're not stupid people, but they are people who know mm. nothing mm. about mm. the stories. And, mm. well, you know, there is understanding there. But that's, that's I, not to no, I hear you. No, no, I know. Thank you. So that's, that's why I think Bauckham's point is, uh, is rich with ideas that we don't have to produce arguments that Jesus is the Son of God and get people converted. We can't. Spirit doesn't recognize... Uh, flesh does not recognize divinity. Mm-hmm. But the witness of the church just points and the Spirit unfolds. So there's no pressure on us anymore. I like, I'm, I'm going to get laughter here. But I love Marilyn when she says, <laughs> along with along with uh, New Testament scholarship, she has all that on her side for what that's worth. Philippians two is probably a hymn. Maybe Paul wrote it, but it's a hymn and it's a beautiful poem. And I want Ed Norman someday to put it to music. <laughs> Maybe a guitar head or a guitar or organ. <laughs> I'm not sure which. But I'm not a music guy. No, Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, and he died on death. Therefore God has highly exalted him. That's a hymn. That's a poem. It's a hymn. So Marilyn says, okay, we got the earliest Christians singing hymns like that. Then we have gospel writers like Matthew and Luke coming around and producing, what, genealogies? See, a novelist sees this, seems to me. Did they read the genealogies with irony? That man from heaven who emptied himself, and now we're told that he has a, a line behind him? Now, what is going on here? So, what is the reading that makes that happen? And we, I said it this morning at church. The, the, the fathers and mothers at, at Nicaea said I guess we just have to say very God and very man genealogy very man very God he's from heaven he emptied himself got it there's reading took the church about three centuries to figure out how to precisely say this after having read it for a long time the, the Arians never could read it that way. Mm-hmm. Bless them. I don't mean to bless heresy, but there's a way to read it. Hey, the guy's got a genealogy. So he's a man. He's not God. Oh, but Philippians 2 says he's God. So, good reading says very God and very man. Uh, Martin, please. So, That's Maryland again, so I, not, never again. Not today, anyway. And, and so you've already touched on this, but mm. one question is, who is to interpret? I'm sorry? Who is to interpret? So let me just say that yeah. the traditional Catholic view is it's a matter for the church mm. and it's, mm. uh, you know, as a whole to interpret the scriptures. Mm. The traditional Protestant view is you know, one man goes away into his study mm. and if he realizes that everyone up to now has got this verse wrong, 
then mm. he goes with it. Yeah. Or she founds a new denomination like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so please, Martin, those please. Are the two extremes. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would quote a Catholic. Hans Kuhn to reconcile the two positions and I think he wanted to do that the great because he would say that we just trust that the spirit will keep the church in his fancy word was indefectible that the church goes through tumultuous times uh, to quote Isaiah 54 oh storm tossed one oh afflicted one not comforted the Lord's body goes through these times of Big struggle, but the spirit keeps the church somehow going down the right path. Who would have thought that today we'd be saying Nicaea, the Nicene Creed? Because it took the church a heck of a long time to come up with the right words. Because each side had some argument. Genealogies, Philippians 2, as Marilyn points out. But the church, so that's my best answer. I think the church just gets it right. And Lewis would point out the church isn't as divided as the world says it is. That the Orthodox and the Catholics and the Protestants, outsiders, as Lewis said he once was, he still heard the same witness from all those different quarters, all that different literature over 2,000 years. He kept hearing the same message. Jesus is Lord. He died for your sins. Come and participate in his mystery. There's different ways of doing that, sacramentalism or preaching, but it's the same message. So the Spirit has done that work to keep the church, I think, indefectible. It's on. It, the Spirit knows how to bring about crises and get rid of bad things, I think. That's, I don't, is that. Is that, how, how, are you convinced, Martin? Or, now you know more about these things than me, you're just. Asking these things about. I'm happy with your answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think it's the final answer. No, no, sir, sir. Just, I was thinking about, uh, I really appreciate a lot of what you've said. I mean, I think oh, good, this good. Is such an important mm. aspect of things. To me, I, I, it's, 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 it's a both end in some mm. ways that mm. we have to keep in tension. I mean, just even the. Uh, if you move on in Luke, for example, mm. right, in the introduction there, he mm. says so that you may have certainty or, or perfect understanding. Like mm. he, he studied these things so you yeah. may have certainty of what has transpired. Mm. So he's, he's laying it out as certain truth. Mm. And, you know, John um, records in John 17, right, the famous high priestly mm. prayer of Christ, right, to sanctify them by your truth. And, of course, mm. truth doesn't change. So there's a fixedness. Mm. of the scripture yeah, yeah. but it isn't given in this cookie cutter kind of wooden form yeah, where yeah. we can just sort of look it up in a textbook and get the yeah, answer yeah. And, and Jesus I, I think was touching on this when he was exasperated so often with the you know, mm. disciples saying yeah. you still don't get it yeah. right after yeah. all of this mm. and, and how much longer do I have to bear with this generation yeah. but then mm. he said but the spirit will come yeah. and reveal all truth too so in other mm. words there was more truth to be revealed that I think God does want us to wrestle with and interpret. Like, I remember getting into a debate with a um, somebody who was saying that, you know, the Bible teaches slavery. No, it doesn't. And I, I went on and tried to sort of expound that to them, how it does not, you know, I believe. But I think God, in a sense, wanted us to wrestle with that truth and come to the clear conclusion that, you know what, this is actually wrong. To take our fellow man yeah. and and enslave them, yes. and so the goal you touched on it again was in, in heaven. What's it going to be like? Are we automatons? God just wanted a bunch of mm. you know 
children to come to heaven and tell us what we should believe God or is he are we going to be like him and actually um, grow in knowledge and and that's what I think that he meant when he's saying you know um, in Amos 3 where it says God does nothing unless he reveals it first to his prophets mm-hmm. and it's not just a go and tell them and shut mm-hmm. up but there's so often the prophet would answer God mm-hmm. Moses would say God are you sure you want to do that? Abraham yeah. would go has the, does not the judge of all the earth going to do right? Yeah, yeah. and God sort of takes counsel and says yeah. okay Abraham yeah. that's what you say and I respect mm-hmm. you Tells us, tells us about God's character, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's Something. a maturity, I think, that yeah. he wants us to grow into. Yeah. And that's a very adult thing, because we will one day judge angels, whatever that means. And yeah. he's saying, mm. interpret and grow yeah. in truth with the guidance of the Spirit, which yeah. is absolutely necessary, as mm. you were saying. Staying with it, uh, I, I appreciate Richard Hayes. I never quite thought this thought before. Many thoughts I haven't thought before. <laughs> that he, he, he says that we right in the Gospels, we have, um, if you read Mark... If you said to yourself, oh, it'd be good to have an annotated version of this. He said, turn to Matthew. You do. Matthew, he reads as an annotated version of Mark. Mark alludes, Mark says, this, oh, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the prophet said. He's back in didactic mode, Matthew, whereas Mark alludes. I think that's true. So the Gospels themselves witness to um, an interpretive process you know, that, 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 that we're meant to experience, I think. Do you think the first readers of Mark's Gospel, intelligent first century Jews or instructed Gentiles, when they read Mark, when they said, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, did they say, oh, okay, that means he's Israel? That means he's Israel's true identity. Out of Egypt. See, Matthew annotates, out of Egypt have I called my son. So he says, see, Israel was the son of God, and now the son of God is coming out of Egypt again. So he sort of unfolds uh, Mark's opening line, in a sense. Sir, uh, Harvey, I'm curious around the... the uh coupling of a humble and hungry mind and heart mm. with the Holy Spirit's wooing us to God and to Jesus. Mm. And I'm thinking of Jesus' response to the question, why do you talk in parable, Jesus? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, uh, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts. Mm. And here's the words that really jump out. I understand with their hearts, mm. and turn and 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 I would turn and I would heal them. So I'm just I'm just pondering in my own mind about the the, the mm. coupling of a hungry mind and heart, um, such as Jesus revealed when he said to the man on the road to Emmaus, which you, which you referenced, mm. he had a Bible study with him. Mm. So he back through all of the scriptures. Mm. In other words, are you hungry and ready to hear that? Um, yes or no? Mm. And, and how much do we how much do we hunger for God by going after his revealed word? Mm-hmm. And then that coupled with the Holy Spirit mysteriously wooing us mm. to God. 
Yeah. So, I'm, yeah. I, I guess I ought, my, my thought is no. that without a open heart, mm. how do we ever come to God? Yeah, well, do we don't, do we? Now, I think, I mean, am I being provocative if I say, Road to Emmaus, Jesus is a Protestant, and then he op- and then he breaks the bread for them, and so he's a Catholic now. <laughs> know me in the Word, and know me as I give you myself in the bread. <laughs> that both are, I think both are. But that's that. Now there's a, you know, a kind of layered, expansive exegesis that goes into. There's a fullness of meaning. Now, is that or is that my fantasy? But why does he break bread with them? The Catholics would go right to that, you know. The, our, our brothers and sisters there would say, no. Say the Lord gives them himself in the sacrament. Um, Bill? Oh, yeah, I was just thinking well, somewhat along those lines, the whole phenomenon of literacy that mm-hmm. in the history of the church, very few people could actually read the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, did I read... Um, at the time of the English, English Reformation, that ten percent of males and one percent of women could read. I, I might have that wrong, but uh, if you follow the trajectory of the Reformation, mm-hmm. literacy is very much at the heart of that. But yeah. if you go back, uh, most people couldn't read the Gospel, so it, it, the yeah. church then becomes a. Uh, the the church is the reader. Yeah. yeah. But Larry Hurtado likes to say, that, you know, the Christians in the first three centuries are the most bookish people ever. Yeah, no, They're just totally sure. bookish. Even then, They're even just then, saturated uh, in, in books. Uh, very few yeah. Uh, yeah. Or they're read too, I suppose. Nora, Nora. Well, that's that was why lectionaries had cycles for the Sunday lecture, but the big themes. And if you were in church only on a Sunday, that was the whole idea, then you would hear those big themes that you're talking about and going back and forth between the church and the church. That was so that people would at least absorb you know, they would hear in that point. They weren't reading. Reading and hearing are a different thing that's going on within your mind and heart. Um, but at least with with that early in the early part of that part of the life of the church, you got to hear yeah. the story yeah. in the lectures. A, a, a literate, a literate six. Yeah, I, I won't mention her name. A literate sixteenth century. <laughs> A very literate 16th century knew, according to the girl, that when Luther, when when Calvin calls human beings worms, his modern interpreters say, "Here's proof the guy was a humanity hater. The ma- he's a monster. We always said that. We don't have to read any further." Marilyn says, "Calvin's referring to Psalm 22. I'm a worm and no man. He's talking about humanity dies in Christ in shame." and rises with him in glory. Calvin has the highest, most exalted view of human beings you can imagine. And modern, stupid people think that Calvin hates people because they're Ill- they, we are illiterate. Right. Not them. We're illiterate. 
And she hates and she attacks me. Uh, I, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> anyway, final, uh, sorry. Final One comment final. And a, brief, a brief comment and a question, because I don't know if you know the answer, Harvey, but um, I, I, I wonder about the literacy issue East versus West, right? Because mm-hmm. one of the problems in the West was that it was always done in Latin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they, they were reading from the Vulgate. Mm-hmm. And you could be, you know, somewhere in England and you would go, I don't know what that guy's saying. But in the Eastern Orthodox churches, they actually were reading from their own, like the Eastern Orthodox did well to interpret the scriptures in their own vernacular. Was literacy different in the East? I don't you know. Got, you got me. Another but topic for It's a good idea for Christians to be literate, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's, yeah. We can encourage one another in that yeah. task. Well, unfortunately, our time has come. Uh, we were blessed to have an interview, so we had a little bit more time today um, for Harvey's talks. Is it by the time he gets to the end, I get really excited and want to start the beginning again. It's like it's like a whole new launch pad. It's fascinating. Thank you, Harvey, so much. Well, thank you for coming up.